Welcome to the Onyx Podcast. I'm this week's host, Dixie Cochran, here with Matthew Dawkins. Hello. Hello. And Eddie Webb. Hello. What? What was that? Um, so I found out that uh, Nintendo Switch cartridges are very bitter if you taste them. Isn't wasn't that like a <laughs> wasn't that like a terrible meme thing people were doing? It, it apparently was, and, and and I have uh, Fire Emblem Warriors in front of me, and so I tried that, and it's it's true. They taste well, awful. They would rather you didn't eat them. Are you dropping it like a tab or something? What's I I, I put the back of it, the, the flat back on my tongue, so. I mean, sure, it was a game that I didn't... Well, I'm glad your sacrifice uh, for, for medical uh, <laughs> science has been greatly appreciated, Eddie. May you rest in peace. I'm going to die now. Goodbye. Did, what, did, did this happen just now? Like, is that what you're doing as we're opening the podcast? Oh, no, no, no. I waited before you recorded to do it, just to be sure, but... The taste was still in my mouth when we started recording. Oh, what you got? What else do you do while we're not watching you, Eddie? <laughs> uh, <laughs> watch garbage trucks have sex, apparently, according to. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah. Well, oh, I forgot about that. There are there are less, uh, I guess, unhealthy pursuits. God, that's a big double negative. There are less healthier unhealthy. pursuits. I, I quite like mine. I was just talking to Eddie yesterday about how one of my biggest pet peeves in writing, unless it's humor or satire, is when people say not unlike something. Like, so, so it's like the thing is what you're telling me. Like, yes. that's, that's, that's what you're saying. Um, I, think, I think that phrase can be employed super, super well in like a, a, a Douglas Adams book, you know? Yeah. Sure. But I feel like in, you know, s- serious writing of, of, of any nature, I'm always just like, really? Like, just just say it's like the thing. Yeah, because not unlike is so explicitly needlessly ornate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Also, people that hyphenate way too many things. This is Dixie's Pet Peeve Corner. <laughs> Welcome to Dixie's Pet Peeve Corner, where we talk about Dixie's Pet Peeves. <laughs> I was, uh, one of my uh, favorite Douglas Adam lines is the ships hung in the sky in much the same way that bricks don't. Yes, oh, see, that's that's great. I I love stuff like that. Like <laughs> when it is employed correctly, that that sort of language is amazing. But when you're writing, you know, like a a a, a horror piece, mm. and you say something is not unlike something else, I'm just like, no, please don't do that. I'm not a big fan of people that say not only, but uh, technically there's nothing wrong with that, uh, mm. you know, grammatically or anything like that. But if there's a uh, a surfeit of not only buts, I, uh, I I get quite angry. I think it is then, isn't it? That's what you, that's what you're just saying. It just is. You, you know, you can list you can list these things. You can just state them outright. You don't have to say not only this, but also. <sighs> it is these two things. Done. Yes. <laughs> Bloody writers. Welcome, Welcome so to Matthew's pet peeve corner. <laughs> not only does Dixie have pet peeves, but Matthew also has pet peeves. Uh, so you've done your tune. Which one's? What's mine going to be? <laughs> right, right now, my, my only tunes seem to really be Javert, as played by Russell Crowe. Uh, <laughs> Eddie, I don't know that Matthew caught what you just did, but I thought that no. was brilliant. No, <laughs> uh, I didn't. I was in my own zone. <laughs> Oh no! Well, you don't okay. have to explain it to me. I'll listen back, like I did to our episode a few weeks ago, where Eddie did actually put in the sound of the sort of news ticker starting uh, <laughs> when we were talking about the Grumble Dukes and all that. He did that. did sort of news headline <laughs> thing. So there you go. I listened to the first three minutes of our show. I don't know if either of you actually listened to the Mario Kart episode. No, uh, yes, but, yes, I did. Yeah, I it it took me way longer than I'd like to admit to find the Mario Kart jumping noise to put <laughs> over the one expletive I wanted to beep. Oh wow! Because um, I really wanted to use a Mario Kart noise to bleep right. it. Mm. Um, and so I was going to all these like websites that have Mario Kart sound files, and I was like, "What's a really short one?" Because it's 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 you know it's one syllable. Um, mm. And I was like, ah! And then I finally found one, and I and I, I I bleeped it, and I was very proud of myself. Was it the jump or was it the coin? Ba-ding! It was the jump. Okay. Um, yeah. because it's just a really short little like boop kind of sound. Yeah. Oh. Uh, admittedly, in none of the Mario games, I think, do they ever actually say. 
Now, uh, Dixie, Jesus you'll have to use it again. Fucking Christ! <laughs> Why do you do this on episodes? I don't have to edit. <laughs> Hope you saved that one, Dixie. I deleted all the sounds because I didn't want to take up space on my computer. <laughs> You're so mean. <laughs> I just put like a fart noise in there or something. Now. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna do like a terrible sound. It's just, it's, it's just gonna be me yelling. It's just gonna be me going. Ah! <laughs> there, now I have it. Done. Oh, I'm gonna oh have God. to do that for every episode of yours. Please don't. <laughs> Please won't. don't do that. Um, I, 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 what are we even doing this week? Uh, we're interviewing Josh Heath. <laughs> Hi, Josh. Uh, so, Josh Heath is one of our freelancers. He's worked on a few things for us. We'll talk about that during the interview because we've already recorded it because that's how we roll. Um, he also works with high level games, which we'll talk about. That's that's his thing. Um, he has a list of about 8,000 links of places you can find him at the end of the interview, which will all be in the show notes. Uh, and with that completely wonderful segue that had nothing to do with anything, let's go on to the interview. And we're back with our interview portion of this podcast. We are here with Josh Heath. Hello, everyone. Hello, Josh. And of course, Eddie Webb. Hello. Because he's cooler than Matthew. Oh, oh, shit. And by cooler, I mean lives in East Coast time. <laughs> right. Lives in the acceptable time zone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I know we've mentioned Josh on here before. He was at Save Against Fear with us. He ran HLGCon that I've talked about a few times. And also he is a frequent freelancer and community content producer, uh, both for us and I think some other role-playing games as well. I cannot follow all of our freelancers' careers as closely as I'd like to because we have like 250 of them. Um <laughs> That said, Josh, if you can tell us a little bit about both your work in the RPG industry and also your work with Onyx Path specifically, just so we kind of know how you came to us. Yeah. Um, so I got involved in the RPG creation side of things in 2017. That's when I first um, dipped my toe into it, right after I finished grad school. Um, and... I got involved in Onyx Path um, through uh, the community content program, actually. Um, I started working on the Storyteller's Vault when that first came out. And then mm -hmm. um, Matthew reached out to me uh, with an opportunity uh, to work on Mage's uh, Gods and Monsters book. So that was kind of my transition um, into doing freelance work for Onyx Path. But I freelanced for um, a few different companies. Incidentally, a lot of uh, work on anthropomorphic animal games, which was not intentional <laughs> by any means, but uh, seems to be a thing that I've fallen into. So I just, uh, I've got to embrace it and, uh, and run it happens. You, you gotta, you gotta just go with it at some point. Yep, it, for sure. it does kind of blow my mind that anybody's first Onyx Path line would be Mage the Ascension. <laughs> like that's a beast to jump into. That's, that's, that's like saying that your first work was on, you know, Exalted Lunars or something. <laughs> yeah, <Right. laughs> it was pretty amazing. Uh, and definitely a bit daunting to be given a, a big word count and said, Hey, go and, and do this. But, uh, but I love Mage. Uh, I've loved Mage and I've loved the World of Darkness for 20 years. I got into gaming through LARP in the World of Darkness. So for me, it was just kind of a, I'm coming home. I know this world. I know the things that I want to pull out and talk about. Um, in the sections that I'm writing. So yeah, it was it was daunting, but also exciting at the same time. I kind of get that though, because that's, that's how I felt when I wrote on Pirates of Pugmire. Um, it was one of my first writing projects. I'm not really, you know, a, a huge writer. I definitely prefer my my place in the pipeline. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but at that point, I had read or worked on every other Pugmire project. And I had even developed one. It's my only like hardcore development book i've done so far mm -hmm. so Which like we worked on together yeah exactly yeah. but like knowing the world was it made it really easy you know it's like once if if, if you're super familiar with it because i had i edited bugmire i edited monarchies i had worked on the monarchies adventure collection i had read a bunch of like side projects for both of those so i was like i feel like i know this world like i've, I've read every bit of it so coming into something even like major exalted like most of the exalted writers that we tend to hire are fans for that mm -hmm. reason because they're familiar with the world of exalted if you're completely unfamiliar with exalted it's very hard to give somebody a writing assignment 
Yep, absolutely. It's good to have that passion and all of that background knowledge, all that lore knowledge, because then you can take it and consolidate it and uh, express those key things that you need to for whatever your word count section is. Yeah, exactly. And yes, listeners, Josh wrote uh, the first adventure in my adventure collection. Um, it is the one designed for first level players for Monarchies of Mao. It is super fun. And if you wanted to play it with Pugmire characters, you totally could because the games are compatible. So yep. mm-hmm. pick that up. It is not very expensive on DriveThruRPG. <laughs> <laughs> it is some money. <laughs> it is. I don't remember how much it costs, but it's it's only three adventures. It's a 30k book. So it's not, you know, it's not a huge investment. Right. I'm going to say, you I think it's some... around $5 or something like that. It's yeah, not a huge yeah. investment, It's but it's a great set of adventures, including A Murder Most Foul, which is the first one, my adventure, and it's awesome, but so are the other ones as well. Yeah, they're all very fun, and they're all, like, they're not connected, but they're meant for players of first, third, and fifth, so it'd be really, really, really easy to, like, seed some adventures between them to make them connect if you wanted to like one mm-hmm. one adventuring party could easily run all three so that's super cool so were you into writing before you kind of got involved in the rpg industry josh like i don't know what your um you know college and grad school background is because i know that some people just kind of start doing it one day after a whole long time of enjoying role-playing games and some folks are like i always wanted to write and then i found this like niche that was perfect for me yeah, it's weird. My uh, my reason for getting into gaming is kind of a strange pathway, but I was a, a gamer for years, and then uh, I went uh, to the army and continued to game while I was enlisted, but uh, mostly uh, games like Aberrant and D&D a little bit. Those are the games that I generally would pull out and play with folks. Um, mm-hmm. And then I went to um, school. I went to my undergrad and then directly into my graduate program. So that was done in like a four-year chunk. And uh, we also had a baby at the, like during the that the middle of all of that while I was transitioning from undergrad to grad school, so uh, it was exciting. But um, when I was going through grad school, my goal was to work for the UN eventually, and I was like, I'm going to get into peace building um, because my degree work is in political science and intercultural um, peace and conflict resolution. And when I was in grad school, a almost to my last semester and a professor looked at me and said, do you really want to work for the UN and learning more about the UN and things like that? I realized like, no, I I really don't actually want to work uh, in the UN doing Mm -hmm. the sorts of things that the UN does. Um, Not that the UN's bad, but the UN certainly has some interesting um, peculiarities to it. And Hmm. they, they were like, what do you want to do? That is something you're passionate about. And I was like, well, I love games and they were like, well, what can you do in the U.S.? You know, you want to go back overseas. I wanted to go to Africa and work uh, in Mali in particular, but my French is terrible. And they were like, so what can you do in the U.S.? And what can you do with things that you're passionate about? And I realized like gaming and role-playing games were a pathway for me to take my interest in peace building and intercultural dialogue and kind of merge those two things together. So that's weirdly how I got into writing where I was like, I need to build up a, like a stable of writing background and, and like um, friendships and associations to be able to eventually turn this idea of intercultural dialogue through gaming into a project. So that's kind of what got me started um, in games writing. I love that peaceful conflict revolution and intercultural dialogue is totally something that could apply to both, you know, various world politics and also RPG industry. Yep. <laughs> They're basically the same thing. But I well, I mean that's that's the thing though, is you know, you, you hear some people talk about how gaming led them to be able to interact with people better just in general. Um I you know, because you're 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 working with a group constantly. I I took that into college when I went to college and was like, oh I've been gaming for several years, so working with five people from different backgrounds is not that weird to me. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it, it is interesting how there are some parallels there. I think it's really cool. Like yeah. Model UN is essentially a LARP, you know? Yep. Yeah, and I totally. used to jokingly say that I would LARP when I was uh, doing public speaking and doing podcasting and things like that and doing stuff. So like LARP and those skills, gaming skills, it's absolutely a huge like booster for, you know, those sort of social skills. Totally. Well, that segues perfectly well into what we were really going to dig into today which is your work on reach out role-playing games. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so can you explain for the listeners what exactly that is, what it's going to be, kind of where it came from? Yeah, so Reach Out Role Playing Games, and I sort of mentioned some of the background just a moment ago, but it's mm-hmm. um, the idea that we can take role playing games and utilize them to uh, tell stories with one another, because my um, educational background was effectively in helping other people tell their stories to one another. You know, mm-hmm. how do you get people um, from particularly entrenched conflicts, usually 50, 60 some odd years long conflicts and say, how do you get them to tell each other their particular version of a story um, so that they understand one another? Um, and storytelling is uh, as any as much as anything can be even shown to be a good form of peace building um, after a conflict. So I said, you know, we have this. Uh, history of these games that are effectively helping people tell stories, how can we utilize those skills within um, a gaming framework to make people have fun? So they're building time with one another. There's lots Mm -hmm. of peace building activities that are focused around like sports and things like that. But I'm like, that's not enough to actually like break through these barriers of these misunderstandings. So how do we get people to talk about both their conflict and have fun with one another in a way that they don't feel overwhelmed by either the conflict or ignoring it completely and just having fun with one another. Right. So what exactly is the aim for Reach Art Role Playing Games as far as what sorts of books or other tools are you working on? Yeah. So um, Reach Out Role Playing Games or ROARPEG is the acronym that I use for it. Um, ROARPEG. One, just fun to say. That is and, fun to say. Yeah. <laughs> and two, uh, our logo is a, a dragon that I kind of like, looks like it's roaring a little bit. And I'm like, you know, that's our roar pig right there. Um, right now, what I've been doing is kind of weaving in some of my, um, my philosophical ideas of um, intercultural dialogue um, in all of the different game products that I've written or worked on in one form or another. But I'm building out a handbook um, with the design of saying, hey, if you are a a peace builder working in a a dialogue scenario or setting with people, you can use this to introduce these sorts of games. A bit similar to what um, the Badhana group, um, Eddie, which I know you're very familiar with, uh, are doing Mm -hmm. with their therapeutic um, game research. So that's sort of what I'm doing. I'm doing like a two tiered thing where I'm going out and talking to people at conventions and things like that about the theory and the ideas behind this, as well as working slowly on the handbook. And then I'm going to be turning it into a project where it's like, here's the handbook, go out and utilize it as well as I'm going to go out and do trainings and peace building exercises with people and things like that. Okay. So the handbook is essentially going to tell you how to use various already published games to facilitate this kind of dialogue? That's the idea. Yeah, because I've got three, I would call them styles of uh, of running a dialogue session using role-playing games as a way of doing that. Um, so it would let you utilize one or another of those different types of dialogue scenarios using pretty much whatever game you wanted to, but I would want to build in some um, examples into the handbook where it's saying, hey, if you're using... Dungeons and Dragons, this is the type of thing you can do. If you're using a game set in the modern world with supernatural creatures like um, the Chronicles of Darkness or World of Darkness, these are different things that you can utilize to do these different techniques and different um, types of dialogue with them. That's cool. Can you give us some examples of how you might use a certain game to facilitate that or like an example of a dialogue that might be helped along by that? Yeah. um, So I think... Pugmire is a good example. Um, one, just because I love We Pugmire. hate talking about Pugmire on this podcast. <laughs> I know, it's we, the worst. <laughs> we reject Pugmire conversations on this podcast, and I will not be having a dialogue about that. No, no, go, sorry. <laughs> nope, nope. Only cats. Uh, well, then let's talk about the monarchies of Mal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the world is really set up very easily for people to get into it one Uh, you want people to be able to kind of jump into it and feel a sense of familiarity with what they're doing if they're unfamiliar with playing role-playing games but also a sense of there's something deeper here there's deeper conversations we can have Um, so in monarchies of Mao, you can easily set it up um, so that or in pugmire that you are playing these dogs or cats that 
uh, have been in recently been in conflict with one another. So you might build a mixed group where you mm -hmm. have two dogs and two cats and maybe um, one person playing um, a bird or something like that, or, or they also, or there's a weight to cats or weight to dogs, depending on the amount of people you have participating. But it's in some ways better to off balance that um, depending on what sort of conversations you want to have. Um, in the end, what I would want people to do is kind of see reflections of their own conflict within the conversation that's happening in the game. So um, you would then run a game session, two, three hours of the game session, where people are seeing small reflections of their own conflict within the game world. And then you're having a conversation after the fact, a bit like a debriefing and saying, hey, in the next 45 minutes, we're going to talk about um, this game, the things that you liked, the things that you didn't like, the things that you saw in it, and how those impact you. And maybe depending on the style of dialogue you're doing, you can be explicit and say, how does this impact your real life conflict that you've been involved in? Or pull it a, away from that completely and just say, what do you think about this game? How does it reflect you? And let people come to those places naturally. There are some different schools of thought on how to do that, that I'm building out, but that's the basic structure. Mm -hmm. I'm still trying to like dig in a little bit just for the sake of any listeners who aren't as savvy with some of this stuff. Like, is there a example of the kind of actual conflict? Like, like person A feels this way, person B feels this way, and so they settle it with this, or they use this as a tool to lead to a greater conversation? Sure. Let's use a really specific example and say yeah. uh, the Northern Ireland, um, the the struggles and the um, the issues in in Ireland. Um, okay. You could easily have a group of kids from um, from the Republican kids from uh, and it doesn't have to be kids. It can be adults as well. But um, in generally, in my examples, I focus on like teenagers, like 16 to 18 years old seems to be a okay. good time to do this. Um, you get kids from those different sides of um, the conflict and say, hey, you have a different history uh, of what this conflict was and how you experienced it, you know, kids that age didn't experience um, active violence as often as their um, as older people have. But mm -hmm. what sort of things do you understand that this conflict was based on? How do you understand that impacting your life today? And then you can mirror those things in um, in Pugmire in particular. If you have the um, and I can't remember the area now off the top of my head, but there's a cat's quarter in the um in the city of pugmire and mm -hmm. you could have cats do marches through that area of pugmire or you could have dogs do marches or parades through that area as part of the storyline that you're doing which is parades and marches were a very common thing in ireland during the struggle um during the that's not the right word um troubles the troubles yeah thank you one of those times my brain was not coming up with the right word but during the Troubles, that sort of activity was done by both Protestants and Catholics very regularly as a, as both a memorial thing. Usually when they were doing mm -hmm. it, they were thinking, this is a memorial for uh, something that has happened. But people on the other side would see it as an intimidation tactic. And mm. you can play on that in, um, in Pugmire, I think, really easily to say, like, this is a memorial for a, uh, a fight that happened or a battle that happened. And the other side sees it as a, this is an intimidation factor to remind us that you beat us in that battle or something like that. That is fascinating. And yeah, thank you for putting into such specifics for me, because that's, mm. that's kind of what I always want to know with these things, because I'm, I'm, I'm not as much of an abstract thinker as some people are. I definitely tend to need like more literal, like, here isn't, you know, here is how it can be used, or here is a very mm. specific allegory. And I'm like, okay, this, this makes sense now. Well, that actually um, brings me to an interesting question about this, because um, when I designed Pugmire, uh, definitely my intent was I wanted to give kind of uh, an abstract background so people could have all kinds of conversations about mm -hmm. like, xenophobia or nationalism or whatnot. Um, but in some of the circumstances, is there more uh, validity or value in doing something like, say, Chronicles of Darkness, where it's a much more direct analog to the exact thing being discussed, or is it better to keep it distant and through an abstracted player? It depends on the group of players that you have. 
And mm-hmm. it depends on what they're willing to invest in. If you get a group of, uh, of folks that are like, you know, we want where we are here to do a dialogue within the game, that is different than a group of, uh, of folks that are like, we want to play a fun game with one another and then maybe talk about these things that are uh, a problem. If mm-hmm. you've got that first group who are like, no, this is what we're here for. We want to like talk through this in one form or another. Then those are the folks that you want to say, okay, we're going to have a direct reflection and we're going to set um, this uh, Chronicles of Darkness game. Or actually, I think it would be interesting to do Trinity Continuum set in um, Israel, for example, uh, set it in Jerusalem mm-hmm. and have both sides be talents um, from um, from both sides of that conflict, Palestinian um, characters and Israeli characters, and get the two of them, those two groups working with one another. Mm-hmm. And if it was mm-hmm. working with Israeli-Palestinian people, then I would have them play the opposite side. Hey, you get to play the Palestinian characters um, if you're Israeli, and if you are uh, Palestinian, you get to play the Israeli characters. And these are the, um, these are the way you're kind of reflecting one another, and then having honest conversations about both the stereotypes and the issues that each side is bringing up with one another. That is something that I think would be um, the way to do that. That's actually really interesting because um, uh, uh, many, many years ago, like 99, 2000s, this was before some of the modern dialogue around these things have occurred. Um, I had, uh, I was running a Deadlands game and I had a black and a white player and they both really wanted to dig into the racism of the time, mm-hmm. but um, both were uncomfortable with saying some of the things and, and, and portraying some of those elements. Um, and so they decided to swap sides like you're suggesting. So um, uh, uh, my black player, he had you know, played for a kind of white Southern slave owner kind of character and, and white player played someone who was oppressed. And in retrospect, some of the things that came out of that and the way we did that were, were problematic. But um, in the moment it, with that group of people, um, both of them got a lot of dialogue because they're able to say things that they had heard mm-hmm. or experienced in their lives um, and put it out on the table and be able to have a real conversation about things that we just never really talked about as a group before. And so it's interesting to hear you say that there's, there, we, I think we inadvertently kind of stumbled into that style of, of, of discourse. That's really fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is useful to keep in mind, and Chris Spivey says this very, very well in Harlem Unbound, is that just because you're um, willing to talk about racism and reflect racism as it is in the game doesn't necessarily give you uh, a free opportunity to use words or yeah. uh, things right. that are harmful with people. But mm-hmm. if you've got a group that's willing to have an honest conversation about what that is, it can be helpful to allow uh, expressions of things that otherwise you would say, I'm not comfortable with this as a gaming table, but we are doing this here for a very intentional reason and we'll have real conversations about it after the fact. So it's it's almost a sense that you can uh, go darker because you're establishing what those boundaries are ahead of time and then working your way through it. So there's, there's a balance there that has to be found between we want to, really talk about this and we're sometimes going to say some things that otherwise we would be really really uncomfortable with um and you just got to figure out how to balance that um as a facilitator or a gm and as your like participants and what they're comfortable with well yeah i think there's a a major difference between you know pushing someone a little bit out of their comfort zones they can explore something from someone else's perspective and making someone uncomfortable deliberately Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it, it it all i mean Eddie talking about his table a second ago, like that was obviously something that those players wanted to do and were consenting to and agreed with, like with with each other and also with the person running the game, and so mm-hmm. that was fine. Like it sounds like everybody involved handled that well, um, mm-hmm. but then you know you you see it sometimes when people play someone of a different culture or they you know like they they just go too hard. Mm-hmm. And you get this kind of sense of like glee that they're acting that way. Uh, James Mendez yeah. Hodes has wrote has, has has written a bunch of great blog posts about this exact sort of thing, where it's like, okay, in this game we're all playing, you know, people of this race or this culture or what have you, and there's always some player, usually a white person, who takes it way too far. 
Mm-hmm. And they're like, but we're just playing this culture. And it's like, no, no, honey, you don't get to do that. <laughs> so there's a huge difference right. between what Josh is talking about with his actual work and what those people are doing. Right. There, there's also like, you know, and like you're saying, like, uh, I've heard stories of people who play things like Legend of the Five Rings, which is meant to be kind of fantasy Japan by way of different kind of Asiatic cultures as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people using that as a way, they, they play their characters as as with horrible ethnic accents and stereotypes. And it's like, that's not what this should be about. Right, exactly. It should be about cultural appreciation and not right. cultural stereotyping. I mean, that's that's yes. what Chris says in Harlow Unbound too. I mean, like I've, I've said before, that's one of the first books I've ever read role-playing wise where it explicitly says that every character in this book is a person of color unless otherwise stated. Um, and that's mm. very important to the setting. And generally, if you're playing that game, you are probably playing black characters. That mm-hmm. does not give you license to say certain things or certain words or use certain accents. It's just not not okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. So because we are, I'll throw this out there because we are three white people talking about this. Um, mm-hmm. Have you talked to other people from other cultures while you've been working on this? Do you have anybody else involved at the moment, or what specific cultures are you talking about? Are you talking about this? Are we just talking about people of different? races and ethnic backgrounds and the like or are we talking about disability culture or queer culture or any of those sorts of things yeah um so all and uh all and more of okay. those i would say in um in the development of this and one of the reasons why it's been so slow and i've sort of been talking through it a lot rather than putting like just putting a book out and saying, Hey, here's your handbook, go run off with it is I've wanted to talk to different people. I've talked to Chris Spivey. I've talked to um, the folks at the Budhana group. I've talked to Jack Birkenstock in particular about this is what I envision this book doing. How do I do it right? How do I uh, touch on certain points that are really helpful uh, and beneficial? And I'm um, stealthily uh, a member of the queer community. So I'm kind of coming um, from that perspective, but not super overtly, because um, for me, where I grew up and being in the army, well, don't ask, don't tell was a thing. I've always just been kind of quiet about it. Right. But I've never been in the closet. So it's been this weird, like, people don't realize that I'm queer and kind of like, comfortable talking about it. But it's just one of those things that I don't normally like shout from the rooftops necessarily. So for me, it's now about Uh, I want to talk about this and get people aware of it as I'm working on it slowly and building it out as a a product to give to people. Mm -hmm. But I want really to get a lot of feedback on these are the things that we as an audience hear you saying and see you talking about how about this, how about this idea. Um, Because I love those sorts of thought experiments, regardless of who I'm talking to, uh, because it's going to help make what we do when we uh, put the Roar Pig idea into practice when when i do this more and more that's those sorts of conversations are going to be super valuable right because i mean you've, you've obviously got the educational background for it mm-hmm. and you obviously have the role-playing game background for it i think some people just kind of like side-eye anybody doing things about you know yep. diversity or intercultural communications when they aren't from those cultures yep absolutely and they have the right to do that i think and oh yeah I think the more we have conversations about like my privilege lets me like talk about X, Y, and Z without like feeling bad about it or without looking at it deeply and then saying, I'm going to look at it deeply. I'm going to acknowledge my privilege and I'm going to say, I want other voices. I want other thoughts. I want people to tell me you're full of crap. Um, I'm totally comfortable with that. Yeah, that's that's something that I've been working on recently, partially because, you know, we we are an industry that yes there are wonderful diverse products out there yes there are wonderful people doing things with it but overall i think if you look at the demographics of the tabletop role-playing game industry we're still pretty overwhelmingly white and male mm-hmm. um once again i could shout out 20 creators right now that i think are doing amazing work and i will maybe put some links in the show notes who knows but um <laughs> but it doesn't mean that the 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 overall demographics are are 100% better or equal yet. Um, so I've been doing some of my own reading on that. I've, I've encouraged some of my, you know, coworkers, some of the freelancers I've talked to you to do some reading on that kind of thing. Um, the, it's been on the top of the bestseller list in that category for like a year is the book White Fragility. 
Mm, it's really, really short too. So anybody who's just looking mm. for like a super quick afternoon read, um, you know, prepare to challenge some things about yourself. <laughs> but it's an yep. important read, I think. And then there's there's a ton of others I could recommend to you, like how to be an anti-racist. Um, yeah, that's the one I was going to recommend. That's the one I'm working through right now. Great um, book. By Ibram Kendi. Yes. A, amazing book. Yep. Um, one that's been on, one that's been around for like 20 years is a book called Why Are All, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Also good. Also a great book. Mm. So like I could sit here and recommend books forever. Um, I'm not trying to toot my own horn by saying that I've read these. I'm just trying to be better. Um, and hopefully anybody else that picks them up does it for that reason too. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's something that I think it's important to talk about. So once once you get into the actual, you know, book is getting on its way to being published, whether that's, you know, POD, traditional, however you end up going, or, or Kickstarted or what have you, um, I'm assuming that you're going to be doing some, like, various testing and beta reads with uh, some various cultural consultant type folks? Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, even before I get to that stage, I'm doing um, Roar Pig, um, what I would call, um, if I could think of the word, like modules with people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm using my local library to do, like, hey, I'm going to run D&D &D in the library. And by the way, sneakily, I'm doing this as an experiment for some of my Roar Pig um, work, which I've talked to the library people about. And it's not like I'm not being um, underhanded about it. I'm saying like, this is my goal is to also test these ideas and how they work at the table, um, as well as building them into my home game stuff as well. So um, when the book is at that point, it will absolutely go through like multiple layers of like cultural view. And, you know, one of the ideas I had initially was the book might also include a section on how to write or create a, a diverse or inclusive game. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be writing those sections by myself. I would be including other writers that can write about the topic um, that is appropriate for them to write about um, and for them to bring their experience into that idea um, if we go that route um, once we get to that point. That's very cool. Um, is that something where for, for, for modules, say for D&D or for Scion or what have you, is that something where you'd be interested in maybe doing community content type modules for those games and say like, hey, this is specifically a Rorpig module? Yep, that's exactly one of my plans. When I first started it, the idea oh, was I'm that smart. I would be right. Figured out your plan. <laughs> Look at me. It's, it's, <laughs> um, and I love, obviously I love community content. I've written or been involved with nearly 100 uh, community content projects Jesus. in one form or another. Wow. Um, so like Storyteller's Vault, I'm at like 45 on the Storypath Nexus. I think I have four or five projects already. Um, and then just other ones that I've edited or done layout work on or um, just done reviews for people on. So I love the idea of community content because it gives that opportunity to for you to play in someone else's like world that you love. Um, I love both uh, the world of darkness as much as I also find it problematic. Um, yeah. And so I enjoy writing, creating there. And then Cyan's amazing um, as a person um, from a, like uh, a non-Christian uh, or a non, I should just say a, a pagan background. It's fun for me to be able to bring some of my uh, experience into the writing work that I do there and my many names of Odin and Heimdall books so far and working on two others. Those are super great. Um, so yeah, I, I love community content. We'll definitely utilize it as a way of doing like, hey, here's a Roar Pig module for this game uh, or a Roar Pig module for um, this particular setting or something like that. Right. And that's that's cool because that's, that's a way to reach people who like all different kinds of games, you know? Because yeah. not, not everybody that, you know, plays D&D &D also plays World of Darkness. Not everybody that plays World of Darkness plays Scion, so forth and so on. So if you could have, you know, five or ten ready to go for different game lines at some point that would not be the worst thing yeah, yeah absolutely so is there anything else that you're planning to do with us or that we haven't touched on that you're like dying to talk about just because i didn't you know maybe have enough information off the top to ask you the right questions <laughs> um the other thing that i am trying to do soon mm -hmm. uh, i'm going to be at gen con i'm going to be at some other conventions doing panels on Rorpeg. Um, because like I mentioned, I do want to talk about the idea and f with other people and get their feedback and things like that. Um, that's the, the step that I'm moving into with this, where I'm like, I want to almost do like mini workshops on the idea, um, both for me to like get better at selling it and to, 
um, so people can give me feedback and talk through different scenarios and say, well, what about X, Y, and Z? How do I work, work through that? Uh, I did that at Save Against Fear where we um, talked for an hour about my different models for Roar Pig. And then I said, okay, folks, like, what are your questions on this? How would you implement this? Uh, and I got some really good questions. And a couple of the questions I had to turn to people and say, I don't think you could use this to do that idea that you have. And this is why. Or uh, someone would say to me, I don't think this would work for this particular scenario. And I would say, yes, it's not designed for that. Or it wouldn't be very effective for that. You might need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so that's helping me like get a firm grasp on like this is the thing. And this is how we can um, make it the most successful thing that it can be. Well, yeah, I think knowing the limitations, something like that is also very important because, um, you know, this 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 is very cool and it is very awesome to open dialogues, but also it might not, you know, bring about world peace. So right. <laughs> and that's fine. Like not not everything has to do that. Um, yep. And mm -hmm. my view is that um, my view is that small piece is way more important than big piece, um, which what I mean by that is it's much more important to build bonds in your local community with people that you're in um, in conflict with and eventually see that turn into larger peace. So those small moments where you're building experiences with people and building bonds with one another and breaking through those, like we don't talk to those people sorts of situations, mm -hmm. that's where I'm targeting. That's the peace building that I'm doing with this project. Mm. So how would you bring this to people who maybe need the dialogue starter but aren't role-playing community people? Mm -hmm. That's the hardest. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that's been like the hardest group of people to sell on this. I think from like a gaming perspective, gamers get it and they're like, oh yeah, like I'll, I can like do this like this and, and use these different games for it. And peace builders are like, oh, you're going to do a video game? And that's been the biggest stumbling block, explaining what analog gaming is and explaining like kind of what that process is. And I, my goal is to do a few of these modules, uh, do a few sessions with people and potentially record them um, with people's consent, of course, and then say to a peace building organization, hey, this is the thing. This is what it looks like. Um, take it into small chunks and kind of package it a little bit as a like a marketing tool for them. I work as a marketer day by day. So taking that and then saying, okay, this is, this is what it looks like. Will you help me uh, do some more of these sessions with people um, and then do some fundraising and things like that, um, working with different peace building organizations? Okay. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Cause I mean, there's, there's various ways you bring people together around a table and this is, the, this is one of them. This is also one where you mm -hmm. explicitly are working together generally or, you know, trying mm -hmm. to overcome differences. Um, and yes, there, there are board games and things where you work together, and some of those could also be used for this sort of thing. I have, I have heard about that happening as well. But because specifically in tabletop role-playing, it's it's all about the dialogue. Yeah. That's definitely yeah. a, a, an important way to message it to people, I would say. Yep, agreed. Um, Eddie, did you have any other questions for Josh about Warpig specifically? Um, I mean, uh, overall, I mean, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground, which I, which I think is great. Um, I am intrigued because it does seem like there's been a lot of this idea coming around in the zeitgeist lately. Um, I mean, because we've already talked about uh, uh, the Madonna Group, which mm -hmm. uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, the Madonna Group is, is specifically uh, on focused on therapeutic uses of tabletop role-playing games, specifically in clinical therapeutic sessions so not um the more community uh, uh peacemaking that josh talking about here but specifically a you know a licensed therapist using these as a tool specifically to help with those sessions um and they're they're a fantastic group but there's also um even like in the video game space there's groups like uh, i thrive mm -hmm. um which is focused on trying to uh um on helping kids, particularly in marginalized communities, using video games to to understand things and 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 it's a better way of having dialogues about things that frustrate or, or alienate them. Um, there's uh, Take This, um, which is using video games in the mental health space, um, and, and there's been also an increased dialogue in 
the tabletop RPG space about things like safety rules um, so that when we have these kinds of, uh, of darker, more emotionally resonant uh, things, we could do them in a safer way. Um, and as a result of all of that, um, I think there's a somewhat understandable, somewhat not backlash to some of that. Mm -hmm. um, understandable in the sense that a lot of this is new um, and a lot of people aren't entirely comfortable with, with some of these discussions. And some of it's not because people are just being assholes and want to find a reason to be an asshole about things. Um, are you finding that as you talk about Rorpig, as you bring it out there, is there a lot of this backlash? Is it just the same kinds of people who are angry about safety rules in Vampire 5 or what have you? Or is there a different backlash? Is, is, do people get it more when you talk to them? What's your relationship with all that? Yeah, it's interesting in that I have been lucky and only gotten like little tiny waves of, of backlash so far from it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also the administrator of the Inclusive Gaming Network, which I set up as like a part of this uh, ideal at the beginning before I like got super familiar with some of the other groups and organizations that are out there doing great things. Um, mm -hmm. There's um, quite a few of them, including... Um, Oh, geez, geez. Um, now I'm uh, not thinking of the name. Um, one of those moments. There's a great newsletter that comes out, uh, uh, and it's something about bringing people to the table. Um, uh, and it's a women's-focused newsletter that comes out. Anyway, um, one of those moments where it's just not coming to me. But um, the question was, yeah, I, I get a little bit of backlash from people, and they are the usual subjects, um, suspects. But... Mm -hmm in general people are kind of like well that's not going to be for me and i'm okay with that and i'm okay with them saying well that's not going to be for me because if you're not willing to come to a dialogue session then you're not going to get much out of a dialogue session um, right and that's okay you have to buy into the concepts to a yeah. degree before you could even get anything out of it exactly you can't expect people to do truth and reconciliation if they're not willing to be truthful and reconcile with people right mm-hmm but on the flip side, um, I still feel like there's a whole lot of, of accidental discovery, I think, that occurs, particularly in the tabletop space. Um, I know for years when I would go to primarily Gen Con, but other conventions, this happens too, where people walk up to me and they'll say things like, you know, I was able to come out of the closet to my family because of being able to play Man by the Masquerade, or um, I came to terms with my sexuality by playing Bugmire, or I was able to have a conversation um, about microaggressions, you know, by playing this other game you worked on. Um, so I do feel like there's a lot of, uh, I want to say inadvertence discovery that comes through these things. And one of the things that I find interesting is that there are, there's a, a group of the community that feel like because they did that inadvertently and things were okay, that they don't need these more targeted pieces and that everybody else should kind of just suck it up and blunder blindly into the darkness and figure shit out. Um, so, I mean, I, I am personally very glad that there are people like you out there um, uh, that are actually trying to help have the conversation, help people understand what the value of it is. Um, but also, frankly, I think there's also value in just walking away from people or, or parts of the community that just aren't going to engage in good faith on this because you're right. I mean, it's, if, if they're not wanting to actually deconstruct, okay, why did this work for me? Then they're not getting anything in value of what you're doing and your time could be better spent focusing on people who are going, I, I feel like there's something here, but I don't know how to do that or I don't know where to go next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it could be challenging. Yeah. It, it can be challenging. And I think, one of the, uh, I'll be blunt about it, one of the advantages of being a white dude that people, that is cis and that people that read as heterosexual is that I can talk about these things and be really blunt about them with people and spend more time and invest a little bit more of my own spoons in this argument or, you know, drop more of my spell slots into it. And then mm -hmm. I'm doing that emotional labor and someone uh, else doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not always perfect at it and I don't ever expect oh, sure. to be, but I think it's valuable to try. Mm -hmm. 
No, I, it definitely is. I mean, I, I've, I've been told by lots of people, and I mean, once again, I hate talking about being an ally or anything. So it's self-serving and shitty sounding. But one thing I have heard from a bunch of my friends from various marginalized communities is, you know, the best way to be an ally is to take that labor off of your friend's shoulders whenever you can. So if you, yep. right. as a, you know this person can correct someone else on someone's pronouns even when that person isn't around you're doing a good job it, it yep. doesn't mean yep. that and you deserve a cookie doesn't mean that you deserve to be part <laughs> of any marginalized group but you know that's 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 a that's a way you can help there are lots of ways you can help obviously but calling out racism calling out sexism calling out um you know any any other of the terrible isms that are out there whether it's ableism what have you uh is a really it's a it's a good thing to do and it's especially a good thing to do if you're coming from a position of privilege and safety where you're reasonably mm -hmm. sure that you're not going to get you know beaten up for saying it yep and the other thing i think we can do as creators and i'll just put a plug in for this is work with people from marginalized communities mm -hmm. give them the opportunity to um to write and put their perspective out there i've worked with a couple of folks who are new to the writing space um, as part of my work with high level games and said, Hey, you're new, you're bringing a new perspective to this. Um, and then listen to them when they were like, you're wrong about X, Y, and Z. Um, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but it's not hard to say you're right. What should this say? Or what, how should this be written? How can we do this better and work with people in an honest and open way? Um, I think when we do that, we both give uh, an opportunity for ourselves to learn and grow, but we give other people an opportunity to learn and grow and, and gain something from it. Yeah, definitely. Well, we are just about at time. So Josh, if people wanted to find you, follow you, read about Warpig, read about high-level games, which we barely even talked about. So, you know, whatever you want to plug here at the end, <laughs> uh, where would they do so? Okay, I'm going to try and list everything. We'll see if I can pull it off. Do it, um, do it, do it. It's going to last the next 10 minutes of the podcast. <laughs> please please list all of your community content titles. Oh, oh, God. oh my word, we don't need to do that. Um, please list every name of Odin. <laughs> oh, we don't need to do that either. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, you can find me on Werewolf the Podcast, where I talk about Werewolf the Apocalypse. You can find me on High Level Games Podcast, where we are currently talking about Ravenloft most extensively. You can find me on highlevelgames.ca. Yes, there's a Canadian company. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you that was can... the most Canadian way to say that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it, I've been programmed by my Canadian overlords to say it correctly. Um, you can find me on the Inclusive Gaming Network. You can find me on Facebook, on almost all of the different uh, World of Darkness Facebook groups. You can find me on Discord at High Level Games, Twitch at High Level Games. You can find me at HLG underscore corporate on Twitter. And you can find me on Patreon if you want to do that as well as either Werewolf the Podcast or High Level Games. I have one really important question for you before mm -hmm. we go back to the outro. Why didn't you call it Werewolf the Apocalypse? Right? That felt a bit too clunky. And I Aww. thought something as straightforward as Werewolf the Podcast. Oh, I'm also on Mage the Podcast. Um, would be <laughs> straightforward enough. <laughs> See, that, that one wouldn't work. Like Mage the uh, Apodchen doesn't, doesn't make a it sense. Yeah, I don't doesn't like it. Easily. Podsension? Yeah. Pod, Podsension? There we go. Yeah. Podsension. Uh, all right cool thank you so much for joining us today it's been a plus talking to you and i think that that was super fascinating i can't wait to Absolutely. see what comes out of uh war pig in the future thanks so much for having me uh you folks have been lovely you've mentioned me several nice times in really ways that have made me feel really warm and fuzzy inside so i appreciate uh getting the chance to talk to you and being on the pathcast Aw. I'm sure Matthew will screw this warm fuzzies up later on. yeah we're gonna slide over to matthew saying something cynical in three Two, one. And we're back. That Josh Heath's like, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I won't do it again. But I'm leaving. I'm going away. I'm gonna. I'm going to the other room now. <laughs> I don't want to be here anymore. This is a hostile work environment. <laughs> Well, I, I understand not having listened to the interview yet that that was partly the the subject. Well, 
not necessarily not necessarily hostile work environments, but uh, to diffuse situations and uh, you know conflicts and whatnot. So maybe right. we should be listening to Josh's advice so we can get past this together. So we don't need to play a game that is an allegory of some sort for the conflict that we're having. So Mario Kart. Yeah, Mario Kart. Okay, book it in. <laughs> That's just gonna make him say the word more. <laughs> but it's okay in that context. That that is the only place that it's okay. You've, you've done it twice here. What does that say about now? You're not okay. Is it not okay? I'm not okay. No. Um, but I, I I believe Shigeru Yamamoto did say in the first Mario Brothers manual that Bowser is a not very nice person um, using <laughs> using the word that I did. Um, so I, I feel entitled to do it within Mario Kart. There you go. I feel entitled. That's the um, that's the headline for this episode. <laughs> I feel like that is exactly the like we, we we have shifted the tone completely from our conversation with Josh, who was very much <laughs> like I understand that I come from a place of privilege, and that's why I want to like you know work with some of this stuff, but that, but but also like listen to people and like he's super aware. And then Matthew, uh, you know, British white man is just like i feel entitled yeah just march in with all my dreams of empire and crushing <laughs> crushing people beneath me that's the way i go no uh, obviously in all seriousness uh i completely respect everything josh is doing caveat caveat uh covering my own back and uh no uh, I think that what he is offering to the game space and players more widely is fantastic from what the two of you have told me. So good on him. And I am just a foul-mouthed, nasty person. <laughs> I can own that. So, so you're a Bowser, is what you're saying? I think, uh, I think of the various Mario characters, I'm more like Bowser than I am an Italian plumber. Are you wet Bowser or dry Bowser? Oh, I think I'm wet Bowser. Moist Bowser, thank you. Uh, I mean, uh, well, uh, yeah, I hate, I hate having dry, cracked hands. So I think I wouldn't stand being dry Bowser. If I was dry, dry Bowser, I would jump into a pool of pink water or or lava because that seems to be the usual uh, liquid elements in Mario pink water? games. Pink water, yeah, it's in the uh, Mario Brothers game on uh, Wii U and Switch, and also in Odyssey. Yeah. I don't have that one. I did discover that if you have the uh, Nintendo Switch Online Pass thing, you mm. can download these collections of like tons of classic NES and SNES games. Mm -hmm. And I got very excited to play Yoshi's Island on my Switch. Yeah, well, that's how Eddie I and I play. That's how Eddie and I play Double Dragon Two. Well, I yeah. didn't know that. I thought that y'all downloaded it or owned it or something. I was not, not aware fair. that this thing existed. Uh, I mean, I mean we we always die at the same place, but it's it's nice to have. <laughs> And actually, one of the things I do like about the the collections is there's there's a couple of the games they have special versions of, so like yes. certainly, certainly like later on, so you can play the later parts of the game without having to go through the first parts that you probably die and all the time. Yeah, I saw that. But also, they have a bunch of games from SNES that like I just remember fondly uh, from being a child. That like mm -hmm. I I was surprised they were on there. They have Kirby's Dream Course, which is a mini golf game mm. with oh, Kirby, yeah. and I loved that game when I was a kid. I do still own it from my SNES, but. Having to hook up the SNES every time that I want to play it is a bit of a nightmare because I don't leave it hooked up and it's got, you know, three different cords to plug in and all the other stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's nice just to be able to do it on the Switch now. Speaking of Switch, I have a Nintendo Switch rant. Do you want to hear this? Go sure. for it. So they're releasing a special edition Animal Crossing Switch. Yes. And I was very excited about it and I was going to buy it because then I could have my own Switch and my boyfriend could have this other Switch. And then mm. we'd both have Switches. But... It went on pre-sale at a random date that I didn't see in any articles about it. And then everybody bought them and put them on eBay for like $600. Oh, no. Um, so I can't buy it now for the actual price of like, you know, $300 because that's how much a fucking Switch costs. Mm -hmm. um, I only... First of all, yes, I do love Animal Crossing, but I only wanted it because I liked the Joy-Con colors. <laughs> they are blue and green <laughs> and they made me happy. I hate all of the other Joy-Con colors, except for the gray ones, pretty much. Um, so I wanted this fucking Switch. I was going to buy it. I'm going to play the hell out of Animal Crossing, and I can't get it. And even if I want to get just the Joy-Cons on, like, eBay, that's, like, $130, and I'm not paying that for Joy-Cons, but I don't even have a Switch yet. 
No. I will. Uh, there are um, some companies I've found that actually will customize your Joy-Cons for you. I saw one at uh, PAX, I think. I have seen the the Joy-Con casings and everything that you can buy, and right. like the like custom Switch casings. And every time that I have looked at like the little how to install guide, I get very nervous because they're like, A, you're going to void your warranty by doing this. And B, you need to be really good with electronics. That's like, like here are all the parts. It's going to come with like a speaker guard and like all this shit. And I'm like, I'm not going to open up my switch like yeah, i'm not comfortable I mean, doing I, that i think I mean, there are places like you can like just say just send me modded things so they won't be under warranty but you can just get modded joy cons yeah but i don't want like if, if i'm gonna have to buy a switch to have a second switch anyway why would i pay for extra joy cons a switch comes with joy cons well what if you want to have play with four players then we have two switches in the house we already have four joy cons so just throw your boyfriend's joy cons away and that will justify the purchase of news. I, I actually modded my Nintendo 64 controllers in that very same way. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's not that, uh, not something to be terribly proud of, I guess. But uh, yeah, I remember it was all a thing at my school to when Goldeneye came out to have things mm. like gold uh, N64 controllers or camouflage ones. Um, camouflage ones were very popular mostly uh, in a odd segue because the Neo Geo was coming out at the time and that came in a camo version and everyone was thinking, well, why can't oh, you get wow. camo controllers for other game consoles? So, yeah, I modded a... I not only modded an N64 controller, I also chipped, that's what it was called over here, I don't know whether that's what it was called in North America, uh, my PlayStation so that it could play international games. Oh. Uh, you had to chip it so that you could uh, run different regions on it. Um, but then the games cost so damn much to import or just buy from the few retailers that sold international games, because uh, most of the time they were selling them illegally, um, right. that it didn't really prove to be worth it. But again, yes, that did void the warranty on all uh, associated parts. Right. I, so did, I... I did chip a DVD player at one point in time to play a region different regions of DVDs, specifically so I could watch Doctor Who DVDs. So so I grew up in the age of uh, clear electronics being the cool thing, so you could see mm. all the parts. Yeah. Um, so I have a clear Game Boy, which I, I still own. It still works. I've had it since I was like seven. Nice. Um, I have a clear Game Boy. When I was like 12, I had a clear phone in my room because that was cool. And I had the translucent purple like N64 controllers. Um, and when I was looking at the different cases and stuff you could get from the Switch, you can get the clear ones and you can get the translucent purple. And I was very tempted to, like, that's that's what was tempting me to mod my Switch was the fact that I could make it clear. Nice. <laughs> and people are just like, I don't know why, but I, I, I guess I always just thought it was cool to see all the parts inside. Like, even if they're not doing anything, they're not moving. I just thought it was cool to see, like, you know, circuit boards and stuff. No, totally. It is, it is a cool, yeah. it's a cool look. It was a weird trend, though, in, like, 97, 98, where, like, everything had a clear version. Like, I remember that clear phone, because it's one of those things that I, like, sold wrapping paper for my school or something, and, like, mm. sold enough that I could get a really cool prize. I got a clear phone. And I had it for years. This is Dixie's childhood corner. Um, <laughs> I, can, I can tell you something odd about a games console. Here you go. It's a, here's a rare piece of trivia for you. Uh, to do with the Gizmondo. Have you ever heard of the Gizmondo by Ta no. Tiger Telematics? It no. sounds moderately familiar, but... So it was released in the mid-2000s. It was released in America and the UK and Sweden. And oh, yeah, that it. thing. I just looked it up. I think it's weird looking. Uh, it is melting. Apparently the plastic that it was made from, if you actually still own one and it isn't in a landfill somewhere will be melting by now. Uh, it really? Just, yeah. <laughs> it's apparently very cheaply made uh, using money from the Swedish mafia. Uh, who knew they existed? I am not even joking. Uh, no, I'm looking up. I'm looking up Gizmondo melting. This is a whole thing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, if you own one, it will be degrading in a bit of a toxic sludge pile right now in the back of a cupboard somewhere, wherever you put it. I think I only had like a dozen games or so. It wasn't exactly a runaway success. But uh, yeah, now, apparently there's a few games consoles like that that were generally made on the cheap. Right. 
and uh, they're just in such a state now that yeah, they're they're puddles of sludge. Uh, the Game Boy, for instance, I know that the uh, original Game Boy, at the very least, it's incredibly unlikely your screen will still work just because of the whatever it is that puts the black on the that, that sort of green screen uh, will have diluted to such a degree that it just won't show up anymore. Mine works. Uh, ah, well, apparently it's a rarity. Uh, most of the original Game Boys now are just, uh, you can't see them. You have to get a part replaced if you want to use them. Yeah. I mean, mine isn't technically original. Mine was like from, um, I don't know, 92 probably. Mm. And it came out in 89. So, but still, I mean, it, it, it works. I, I played Tetris on it, like, within the past six months, just to see if it still worked. Oh. <laughs> Because sometimes you run across a thing in a box, and you're like, does this still work? And then I was like, good job, past Dixie, for not leaving batteries on this, because they would have <laughs> yeah. exploded um, right. in the, you know, 12 years it sat in a box. Well, I know we mentioned Tamagotchis a few episodes ago, and I um, I think that stayed in an episode. <laughs> we have recorded a couple of episodes more than once. Mm. And uh, when I first had a Tamagotchi, I played it to death, of course, for the first month. That I had it, and, and then, then you forgot it went, about it. Yeah, then it went. Oh well, my Tamagotchi died, as they do. Right. And uh, I think it went down the back of a shelf somewhere, a bookshelf, and so I didn't see it for another three years. I found it, and it still had the death screen on. The watch battery that was in it was still running perfectly well, and there was still the sort of stars twinkling in the um, in the in the motion on it. It was bizarre. Oh. I, I had never assumed that the battery would just happily run like that for years and years but i guess because it didn't have any inputs uh, nothing was putting a big strain on it yeah they they last for a long time and kind led of screens are real low power too hmm. true true so yeah when the nuclear nuclear holocaust comes it'll be the cockroaches and the tamagotchis <laughs> that survive <laughs> and on that note <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, where can people find you if they want to talk to you about Tamagotchis, cockroaches, or the Gizmondo? Uh, they can find me on MatthewDawkins.com or on Twitter as ClackClickBang. Eddie? Uh, you can find me at uh, Pugsteady.com or you can find me on Twitter as Pugsteady, P-U-G-S-T-E-D-D-Y. Clever. Yeah. As always, you can find me at DixieCochran.com or DixieCyanide on pretty much all social media. You can find us at theonyxpath.com, the Onyx Path on most social media. And as always, many worlds, one pathcast. <laughs>